This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to season one of The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. In today's Race to Value episode, we have Jen Moore, president of the Maine Health Accountable Care Organization. Jen is such a great leader, and her ACO is doing incredible things. Maine Health includes 10 acute care hospitals, over 1,600 private practices. They're contracted with CMS in a Medicare shared savings plan. They've got over 17 other value-based contracts with commercial and other payers, and they're caring for over 230,000 Medicare and commercial lives. Well, Jen is definitely the expert in value-based care contracting and ambulatory quality management, performance and data analytics. I feel like the conversation we had today, Daniel, we really came full circle in talking about health value from culture to strategy to operations and all of those different tactics. You're right, Eric. We really did cover the full gamut, you know, talking about quality, their top 10 measures, the performance drivers that are so important to them. A big topic that we start out with is managing utilization and costs, especially around their emergency department utilization. And then we circle back into appropriate coding. A lot of fantastic information in this episode. Couldn't agree more. So why don't we hand it over to Jen as she joins us in this race to value. Jen Moore, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited for our discussion today. And I also want to thank you for developing this Race to Value podcast series. You know, we've been on a journey to value and we have to get to the finish line. So this is very timely. I think post-COVID value is going to be a greater focus than ever. So really excited to be here today. Well, we're happy to have you. Thanks so much again for joining us today. And I think our listeners are really going to be interested in what you have to say. I mean, you run a very large ACO. So you're predominantly in Southern Maine and you have one county, I believe, in New Hampshire, about 1,600 physicians and 238,000 lives under value-based contracts. That's a lot. 
A significant portion of your managed population, as I understand it, lives in rural areas. And then Maine has the oldest population. I actually looked this up the other day as I was thinking about our conversation with you. So you know what that tells me, Jen? You're probably going to have an ED utilization problem. (laughs) Well, I think you're probably right. (laughs) Yeah, and sure enough, when I was looking at and I was reading about the ED utilization in the early years of the ACO from 2014 to 2016, you were historically around 775 visits per thousand for your MSSP population. And, you know, compared to other ACOs in the country, I mean, they're well below 700. So you definitely had out of the gate, you had a problem. I'm sure there's a lot of listeners out there that can appreciate that. But having come out of ACO operations myself, I mean, when I see that number, I was like, I couldn't get over it. So I'm fascinated with this egregious scenario that you were facing as a leader. I mean, the story of how Maine Health ACO turned this around, I think it's, it's something that we're really excited to talk to you about today. And I thought it would, it would be a great way to start our conversation. Your organization is winning this race to value. And this incredible success story is something that we wanted to showcase for our listeners today. So we're going to talk about a few topics, but I thought let's go ahead and spend some time on this ED utilization problem and really understand how MAKO conquered this. This is really awesome work, Jen. Thank you. Let's start in the beginning. So it's late 2016. Your ACO leadership has diagnosed this extreme utilization problem with the ED Can you walk our listeners through this ED problem from the time it was initially detected as an outlier to when you brought this forward to your value oversight committee? I mean, how much time did you spend understanding and scoping the problem? And in these early stages of strategy development, was it difficult to get buy-in from the governing positions? Sure. Well, let me first describe our Value Oversight Committee, or VOC, as we refer to it. So we established the VOC back in 2012, and our intent was to engage clinical and administrative leaders in assessing our performance and then making recommendations for improvement. And so we have a dyad representative from each of our 10 local health systems or hospital communities, as we call them, in the ACO. And each local health system also has a local Value Oversight Committee where they bring our findings back and they discuss the regional nuance and they talk about how to integrate ACO priorities into the local health system priorities. And so this engine, this is our performance engine, I guess, the VOC, um, has really been critical to our success and is really that group that helps us size our problems and think about how to improve. And we had been sharing data with the VOC regarding utilization, and we had noted that for, as you would know, the Medicare Shared Savings Program, we were significant outliers relative to other ACOs in actually two important areas. The first, as you mentioned, was the ED per thousand rate, where we were significantly above average. And the second metric that we paid attention to was our PCP visit per thousand rate, which was significantly below others. So our high ED rate coupled with our low PCP rate really led us to believe that our issue was really an access issue. And as you mentioned, we're a rural state, we're the oldest state in the nation. It didn't surprise us necessarily that we had an ED issue. We've all often had challenges recruiting primary care physicians in our rural communities, but we wondered if it was unique to that population or whether this was a more pervasive issue. So we started to study data for all of our value-based agreements and we actually found that the ACO rate was higher than the network in 16 of 17 of our contracts. So Houston, we had a problem. We knew we needed to address it. So we brought that data forward to the Value Oversight Committee, and they agreed that it needed additional research. 
we pulled data from our PropHelp management platform, and we started by saying, well, we have a sense that it's an access issue, but let's really do a root cause analysis. So through our population health platform, we pulled the top 20 high utilizers from each hospital region, and we shared that information with our dyads from the Value Oversight Committee and asked them to bring them back locally and do some research through chart review, through patient contact, and let us know what did they think were the true drivers of this. And not surprisingly, it's multifactorial. The most common characteristics were a complex clinical needs, usually around chronic illness, unmet behavioral health needs, social determinants, and absolutely access to care challenges. One of the more common reasons was loneliness being a, a major driver, actually, of ED. So doing that root cause analysis at least helped the regions connect to their own data and started to understand their population more than they had before. They really hadn't gone to that level. So that helped us get the buy-in from that group. And the other thing I think that helped get buy-in was the decision to focus on avoidable ED. ED rate per thousand, that's a, it's a huge data set. Focusing on avoidable enabled us to get a more manageable list. And of course, it was deemed to be impactable. And get Getting a buy-in to focus on avoidable ED was really easy, an easy win, because the clinicians really saw that as a breakdown or a failure and something that they really wanted to address. I would say the most challenging aspect of getting buy-in was more trying to get people connected to utilization data, period. So this group had been very active in quality measures and very successful in improving quality measures. They see a gap, they know how to close it. Not that that's easy work, it's, it's very complex work also. But the utilization was just a little trickier. It's hard to find that actionable data and know what steps to take. So that was the, the bigger challenge. But the committee was really focused on doing this work and the Value Oversight Committee was critical to making sure that that strategy was endorsed and then made applicable to the local regions. Jen, thank you. Wow, that's that's really enlightening. And it reminds me of a quote that I'm fond of from Sun Tzu, an ancient Chinese military strategist. He said, strategy without tactics is the slowest route to victory, and tactics without strategy is the noise before defeat. And as I hear you tell your story, in thinking about strategy, leadership, buy-in, data analysis of those top drivers, getting a project team built, thinking about how you operationalize this, how you shifted from strategy to tactics. And so you developed a playbook, designed a playbook that would help address the emergency department overutilization. And so for those ACO executives listening out there who are facing similar challenges, how did you know where to start, how to design a playbook that would be flexible but effective given that you've got unique heterogeneity of your managed population, as, as you talked about being spread across coastal, rural, urban communities and multiple different cultural components. And, and can you talk about how you operationalized that ED utilization playbook, refined your tactics and, and then measured progress over time? Sure, great question. The, the very way that we set up the Value Oversight Committee promoted flexibility because we recognize that care is local. Local health systems manage distinct populations and they have unique utilization opportunities. Not all of our local health systems actually were driving our ED rate. 
and reducing ED at a critical access hospital has a much more significant financial impact, obviously, to, to that hospital than our academic medical center. And their patients probably have different needs. So we were aware of these challenges going in as we set out to define tactics, but we knew that our tactics would have broad strokes, but that they would be customized by the regions and that some regions might utilize some tactics, but not all. So we started, our staff first started just really literature review. So we looked out at best science, clinical evidence, and best fit for our resources. And then we leveraged our population health management data, our subject matter experts, and our value oversight committee to identify. We started with 11 tactics, if you can, can believe it. And of course, we knew that that was too many, but we wanted to present that to the, to the Vox so that they really had a voice in helping us narrow those down to the two that we thought would be most impactful. And the two that we landed on were strengthening patient decision-making, and that became known as our Where to Go for Care patient education campaign. I'll talk more about that in a second. And then the second one was around optimizing primary care resources through team-based actionable care plans, what we referred to as our ED actionable care planning process. So the first tactic, the where to go for care marketing campaign, we created a poster with input from our project team, stakeholder groups, including patient advisory groups, our pediatric and adult service lines, legal counsel we wanted to get involved. And the poster has four components to it. And the intent is to demonstrate to patients where you should go for what types of care. So for example, we have primary care office, we have $2 signs on that column, walk-in clinic with $3 signs, urgent care center with six, emergency room with eight. And primary care office, we say, call your PCP for physical screening, vaccinations, sprains and strains, that sort of thing. And of course, go to ED for chest pain, shortness of breath. So it's a very simple poster, but it has been incredibly effective. And so this master template is customized for each region. So because not every region has a walk-in and an urgent care. So each of our local health systems, our hospital communities took these posters and they customized both the dollar signs and the settings so that it was relevant for their community. It's been incredibly successful. We then actually created a video, which isn't all that effective now that people aren't in waiting rooms, but was very well received prior to COVID. And so this was a video that could just play on in the waiting room TVs. And again, just really emphasized where to go for what types of care. The results of this is it's been seen by 30,000 people. It's been translated into five languages. It's been integrated into MyChart with an Epic. And actually, three of our payers have come to us and asked us to adopt this and have shared with their employer groups and oncology and ortho practices. So we're incredibly proud of this work, and we continue to promote its use. The second tactic, the ED actionable care planning process, was very resource intensive. So this was leveraging our population health management platform to identify patients, again, the high utilizer patients. Our care management team then went in and did a chart review for each one of these patients because some of the patients that the, our tool identified may not have continued to be in, in the current environment a good fit. So some of those were weeded out through chart reviews. If the patient was thought to be eligible for care management and someone that would be good to engage in care management, the care manager presented that data to the primary care physician and then they engage the patient in a three-way conversation to develop an action plan. 
essentially a care plan to help to manage their utilization. So as of the end of 19, we had about 230 patients that were engaged in care management through this effort. But in 2019, we can say that we had a 6.3% reduction in ED visits per thousand. We still have a long way to go, but again, we were pleased with that success. Well, Jen, it certainly seems like a key enabler to that success has been leveraging your underlying technology infrastructure. And you were able to risk stratify the population for identification of patients with multiple preventable ED visits, and then also look at those that are very susceptible to choosing the ED for reasons that are non-emergent. And over the last few years, healthcare organizations like yours have been starting to take advantage of predictive models and analytics to better drive decision-making and be able to take more effective action and apply those new insights to other data that's already available at your fingertips to really think about population segmentation. So as I understand it, you've been using the Johns Hopkins ACG model and you've been able to integrate both claims and EHR data. And I think that would be a great case study for the rest of the industry to hear about and understand how you were able to ingest and aggregate all these disparate data streams for risk stratification. Can you describe to our listeners how you present this data to providers and then what's next on your technology roadmap in the future? For example, do you think ACOs are going to be able to bring in other data sets like behavioral, psychosocial, biometric data to further refine predictive models such as this and create really more personalized care interventions? I do. And and in terms of the data that we present to our providers, we've always been really careful about what kind of data we present, noting that they do their work in their EHR and they have often told us that going to another platform to see claims data is not helpful to them and how we package that information because what we have said is it's really important for you to get that full patient picture. It's great that you use your electronic health record. That's, that's the right thing to do in point of care but we're missing a lot of information about care that's provided outside of the system. And so that's the value of our platform. It's bringing in all the skilled nursing facility, all the ED visits that happened outside of the system, and it's really critical for them to understand that full patient picture. And so that's the messaging, certainly, that we give to the providers. To date, we've used the ACG tool mostly for care management, and we find it incredibly effective. So we've, we've always used data to drive our care management program, but in the past, we also allowed physicians to make referrals of their own. And through this ED process and the sit-downs that we had with primary care physicians, it was really enlightening to them when we would bring these lists that were really identified through predictive modeling. Oftentimes, the physician would not recognize their patient or not believe that they were going to be a high utilizer, and they hadn't had any proof that they had been high utilizers. And when we describe the intelligence of this tool and what the data can see that we might not be able to see or know intuitively, a couple of providers said, no, I don't think this is a good patient. We should take that off the list. And so interestingly, we've tracked some of these patients that the tool identified to be future utilizers to see if they actually did present in the ED. And nine times out of 10, they do, and they did. And so again, these, these tools are incredibly effective at identifying patients that we may not know are the right patients to identify. So through those conversations, I think the clinicians are starting to get a better appreciation of what these tools can do and how they can use them in, in the day-to-day practices. And the care management teams 
are really benefiting from feeling that they're able to identify patients that are truly impactable. One of the criteria that we used are the tool helps us say who has an urgent, quote unquote, urgent risk. They have an ED propensity score that's built into this platform that, that helps us identify patients that could benefit from care management. It's called an impactability score. And so we, we use this urgent risk, this impactability score. We looked at frequent ED utilizers that had two or more ED visits in the past year. And then we looked at recent ED utilizers with at least one in the past six months. And again, that was the data set that helped us engage patients effectively in this utilization management program. And in the future, you asked about other data. Our system is actively capturing social determinants of health data now. That is a data set that will be incredibly useful to us, again, to better identify patients and to better manage them and create meaningful care plans. And going forward, the system is absolutely thinking about additional measures to bring in, and we'll be going through an analytic roadmap over the next couple of years to build that in. It sounds to me like you... The ACO does the analytics and identifies the patients who need care management. And then you give that list to the providers and you say, care manage these people. And what kind of infrastructure did you build around care management? And, you know, how many ACO care managers, for example, did you, did you hire and do you have in place? And how does that process kind of work as far as the ACO's role versus the local health system role? Sure. Well, our our care management is actually in transition. So traditionally, the care management resources all did sit at the ACO. We have about 30 FTEs, about 20 of those are RNs, and then we have health guides um, and social workers that are part of our team. And they are deployed out to primary care practices. So we'll identify the patients and we'll really be passing them on to our own care managers out in the practice. At the same time, our system is unifying its physician practices, so by uh, this time next year, they will all be in a single entity. Right now, they're really all attached to their local health systems, and they're very unique in the way that they operate. When this newly aligned medical group forms, our care management resources will be embedded directly into that aligned medical group. We'll still absolutely have a role in patient identification, coordinating with the payers to make sure we're not duplicating outreach and making sure that the right patients get touched, but the the day-to-day outreach will belong at the medical group. The effort that we just talked about with ED, the new part of that was engaging the primary care physicians. So not that we didn't round back with primary care physicians and share with them outcomes and certainly put notes into EPIC so that they saw what was happening with their patients, but engaging them early on in the decision-making around which patients to engage was new and was really informing both to us and to the the providers in terms of who are those right patients, what are the levers, and and what does impactable mean? What are are the things that a care manager can impact with a patient? So we're in a bit of a transition state right now. So Jen, you just talked about care management and leveraging technology. I can't help but think about telehealth at this time, especially this time of COVID, as we've seen a major shift in the industry to adopt and use telehealth. You mentioned that COVID is going to be a catalyst for value. And, you know, we at the ACLC really believe that COVID, if there's a silver lining to it, that it is that making the industry shift and change quicker than it would have towards value-based activities and thinking more about value-based objectives and, and recognizing that organizations who had some type of value-based contracts and payment arrangements 
that they've fared better by having upfront prospective payments or per member per month payments or capitated payments for their populations, that there has been less financial challenges for them. And so I'm hoping you could talk to us a little bit about Maine Health ACO's use of telehealth in response to COVID and, and how COVID has impacted your ACO this year. Sure. Well, first, what an aha that was, right, where we realized that had we been in capitation arrangements, what a different world uh, COVID would have been. And so we are actively pursuing uh, primary care capitation arrangements, as you can guess. But, yeah, within a week of COVID, we started hearing from our private primary care practices that they were going to have to close their doors. They had shut down just like the system had, but they didn't have the same supports and resources that our system did. They weren't really sure that Maine Health had been working on uh, telehealth for several years years. And so for them, it was fairly easy to turn that on. But our private practices really hadn't been in that space. So for us, the ACO felt that it was our role to make sure that we were connecting our private practices, sharing some of the policies and procedures that the system had developed and was implementing uh, to make sure that they felt caught. I mean, we were fortunate that CMS and the private payers swiftly published payment rules for telehealth, and and we've been supporting the implementation of, of telehealth and making sure that they understand those payment rules and policies. Really, I've been checking in with some of our private practices. They believe that if we they hadn't been able to enable that pretty quickly, that they would not be open today. So they're still not quite back to normal levels, but they really saw the benefit. And, and to, your, to your point, I'm very hopeful that this will stay. I think it really does transform the way we can provide. And clinicians now know how to do this work. And they, they know that they can get paid for it. And they're excited to continue to use telehealth. So I'm hoping that that continues. I'm, I'm pretty confident that we'll continue to see some support on the payment side for telehealth. And again, I think it really does start to get us to that right place and positions them well for those capitated arrangements that we will be pursuing. Well, Jen, you've spoken a great deal about developing a clinical and operational program to support the success of Maine Health ACO. And we're real excited to hear about that and the action planning and the execution and how all of that evolved over time. But as I understand it, it seems like that your ACO has realized that documentation linked to a nonspecific diagnosis, as well as incomplete documentation, that negatively affects reimbursement when it comes to allocation of premium and your MA plans, and of course, establishing your MSSP benchmark. Your ACO has really thought a lot about clinical documentation and, and ensuring that your ACO providers can code to the highest level of specificity to document the true burden of illness that's reflected in the population. And of course, that helps you stratify risk better. It creates better outcomes for patients, especially those with chronic disease. And it seems like MAKO is really making a lot of great progress in this area. I looked at your annual report from last year, and it was noted that there was an 11% increase in the number of chronic conditions coded. Can you walk us through your clinical documentation playbook? And how does your ACO educate 1,600 providers to improve documentation and optimize their EHR for data capture? That really seems like a huge lift given the number of providers in your ACO. So and I'm, I'm really interested to learn more about that. Sure, it is a huge lift and we've made great strides, but we still have a lot of work to do on this front. It continues to be the single greatest driver of our contract performance. And in 2019, we actually required all 1,600 providers to review an online training that we had developed for ambulatory clinical documentation. We asked them to review their baseline data, which we prepared for them out of our Pop Health tool on 
their status of documented conditions, and then we asked them to create an action plan for improvement. As you can imagine, we received a lot of pushback. Many of our facility-based providers were already engaged in clinical documentation efforts on the inpatient side. They didn't see the value in learning about ambulatory documentation. And others felt it was too financially driven and more about contract success than patient care. So as you know, clinical documentation does have, as I said, a significant impact on our benchmarks and our contract performance. But we also really wanted to drive home the point to our clinicians that you know, the risk stratification and predictive modeling algorithms that we were just speaking about will miss some patients that potentially could be engaged in care management if we don't have all those conditions documented. And the plans in the Medicare Advantage space in particular have the opportunity to offer richer benefits for specific diagnoses. So the team made sure to focus on the clinical rationale for the documentation as well, and that definitely got some traction. We were absolutely successful in raising awareness across the system. We didn't get 100% of people to do their action plans and their video, but we had 94%. So we were pretty darn pleased with that, with such a large number of clinicians. And we continue to need additional resources in this space, but again, our results are improving. One thing that was kind of an unintended consequence, but, but really quite beautiful, and, and was how our specialists engaged in, in this effort. And we were able to engage ophthalmologists, orthopedics, cardiology, several specialty groups who helped us to create coding cards that can be used by their peers to assure that they were documenting at the right level of specificity. And many of the specialists said they actually found great value. We got much less pushback and a little bit of excitement, actually, from specialists in engaging in this process. So we were really pleased about that effort, and we continued to roll out these coding cards. Jen, it's really incredible that you could hit, get 94% and have that level of engagement and look for that standardization and uniformity. And Jen, as we all know, one of the significant challenges that ACOs face is that of reporting quality measures. Quality measures vary from pair to pair. So for each of the value-based contracts that you have, you've got different measure sets and it becomes overwhelming to try to track everything and, and to engage physicians on so many different measures. A couple of years ago, the ACLC did a case study with you where we highlighted some amazing work that you've been doing around this, which is early on, you decided that you wanted to solve this problem for your ACO. And so you used this value oversight committee that you mentioned earlier today. You added a physician statistician. You selected measures and you built a culture around having a unified measure set. And further, you built a reporting mechanism that's been referred to as a heat map and that I think has become ingrained and really valued across your organization. So I'm excited to hear more about this homegrown approach that you've taken and what lessons would you share with other ACLs, risk-based entities about how to approach this challenge of so many quality measures? Sure. Well, soon after entering into our contract with Medicare Shared Savings, our commercial and our Medicare Advantage payers quickly put forth value-based models with additional measure sets. One payer actually came to us with well over 100 measures that were factored into our performance. And naturally, we knew we couldn't engage our providers in so many measures. And so we developed this heat map, which just by the way, our statistician that did work with us created this. People adopted the term heat map, and then he quickly got frustrated because it's not technically a heat map, but we still <laughs> call it a heat map. We knew we couldn't engage them in that. So this heat map is a report of the 10 quality measures reported for each of our 10 local health systems. So, you know, 100 fields on this particular report. And we identified the top 10 measures to include on this report report by reviewing all the measures that we had across all of our agreements 
and then we selected those that had the most significant financial and clinical importance. We engaged our value oversight committee in that review and endorsement of these measures so we would have the buy-in at the local level when they brought it back to their local value oversight committees. This report is and has been sent monthly for years and years. The results are transparent, so we transparently list all of the local health systems and what their results are across these 10 measures, and we have a trend line so that they can see how they've progressed, and then we also share how many gaps they have left to, to complete that measure. It has been the single greatest engagement tool that we've had across the system, and when our leaders receive this, they immediately review the results. And they work hard all year to, to flip the tiles. So the, the tiles are red when you're not meeting the measure, and they're green when they meet the measure. One of our local health systems celebrates the turning of all tiles, and I think they're one of the few that actually do turn all 10 tiles on their dashboard with a staff party. They get excited to turn those tiles. And I recently had a conversation with the president of Maine Medical Center, and I had asked him about the value of the heat map because the system has its own quality dashboard. And I've often wondered, is it? too much data? Does it confuse people? And he said, love that report, Jen. When I get that report, I immediately call the president of the medical group and ask him what he's doing to improve these results. So it really has been a fabulous tool. We look at it every single year to, again, kind of revisit the measures that we have because some measures will be dropped off. Either we're performing very well on them, so we don't need the same level of focus, or they may be retired by the payer. So we do refresh and update this on an annual basis. And most recently, we've added certainly more Medicare Advantage STAR measures. Our clinicians have less experience with that measure set. And we are a, a new equity partner in a Medicare Advantage plan, so we know how important STAR performance is, is to success. One bit of advice for others is to create a sister report to this kind of heat map concept. So the heat map is very effective to drive focus on those 10 measures, but we have paper performance dollars at play for many other measures and practices were leaving that money on the table. So we also created a practice incentive report that we disseminate annually. And this report just reflects the measures and the financial opportunities available to each 10. So practices that have the infrastructure and the ability to work on those additional measure sets work just as hard to capture those dollars. But it's important to package the opportunity as cleanly as you can and equally important to negotiate common measures so the, the focus is on those similar areas. So, so that's just a report has been very helpful as well. What's been the response from payers to your heat map and the reporting that you're doing? Yeah, it's a great question. So as you can imagine, some payers are worried if not all of their measures are represented on the heat map, yet most absolutely understand that we can't possibly drive so many measures that if we want to be have success, we have to focus. So it, it's through a lot of conversations. Many of our payers require action plans from the ACO to drive performance. We try to keep our action plans focused on those top 10 measures because, again, typically the measures that are represented in that heat map do represent those that have the most weight from the payer perspective as well. But it is a conversation and it's helping them understand what it takes to engage physicians and how to get traction on, on them. Well, Jen, I would love to explore the payer collaboration mentality that you have and what your success has been there. 
here at the ACLC, collaboration is really at the heart of what we do. And I think that comes from our founder, Governor Mike Levitt. And in his book, yeah, I remember him saying the ability to get things done, it really comes down to having collaborative networks. And that's really going to be the next evolution in human productivity and being able to prosper in the next quarter century. And we think about that a lot in the transition to value-based payment. It's going to require to make that shift spirited collaboration across the entire industry. And I want to see how you as an ACO leader view collaborations, particularly with payers. And one thing that stands out to me is the recently formed joint venture between Maine Health and Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield. It's a partnership that came together to really bring the region's leading healthcare system in the biggest health insurance provider. And how has the launch of this new Medicare Advantage option gone? And what makes this JV different than a typical relationship between a payer and a provider? Well, having worked with payers for my entire career, I feel very strongly that we are in partnership to advance efforts around the triple aim. We have common goals and we have unique resources to leverage. You know, what's exciting about our joint venture with Anthem is that we have an opportunity to influence the design of the plan. We have input into the benefit structure. We have input into provider incentives and policies and procedures. And, you know, Maine Health's goal overall in seeking a joint venture were to share in the business risks and rewards as an owner, provide a partnership that allows Maine Health and Maine Health ACO to collaborate on the development of population health strategies. And one thing we did right off the bat was created a provider advisory council with representatives from across our network. And this council reviews proposals down to benefit design proposals, policy and procedure proposals, and they make recommendations uh, such as proposed changes to prior auth requirements and processes. I'm sure that won't surprise you, but we hear often from our providers about how many requirements there are around prior authorization, how oftentimes those prior auth are approved at 100%. And so they've asked our partner to say, let's look at that list. And if 10 procedures are approved at 100%, 100% of the time, there's probably little need to have people go through that process. And so our partner is working with us and thinking through how can we cut out some of that noise and reduce that administrative burden. So that's exciting. We're strategizing together on how we can best improve our star performance and our risk adjustment, and how can we best engage providers in this work. It's unique because we do consider this our health plan, and yet, as you know, with providers, they have the patients in front of them. They don't necessarily want to steer toward one plan or another, but if we can demonstrate that this plan has benefits, both benefits for the patients in terms of their structure um, and benefits to the provider in terms of the administrative requirements, then that's a win for everybody. This is our first year, so 2020 was the first year of the plan, and it far exceeded our expectations from a sales perspective. And I think both parties have learned a lot about how to partner effectively in this space. So we're, we're certainly learning a lot about what it takes to set up a Medicare Advantage plan, and they're learning a lot from us about the challenges of engaging providers, even when it is their own health plan. It's off to a great start. We still have a lot to learn, and I suspect what we learn will also help us influence some of our other partners in this space. Jen, a lot of what we've talked about today and really Mako's successes that we've highlighted and others have really been driven by leadership. And when Maine Health ACO joined the ACLC, you were part of a contribution to the development of a leadership team's assessment and a white paper. The research was led by our friend, researcher Greg Kotzbauer. Your participation in this leadership cohort included 
group discussions and interviews with ACL leaders. And to give our listeners a little bit of context, the assessment was developed around a framework that was built by IHI, but the ACLC added assessment questions to help an ACO's leadership teams self-evaluate. And it covered domains like setting direction, building will, exploring the future, and that type of thing. And, and I want to know, when you were in this project and as you reflect on your leadership, which of these leadership domains stands out to you? Which do you feel is most relevant or impactful for your ACO? And what are the skills and mindsets of your leadership team that to position your organization to be successful in value? Great question. So, so first, I thoroughly enjoyed participating in the leadership cohort. It was incredibly helpful to have a framework to assess the team's ability to create the case for change, lead the change, and embed the value-based mindset. It was additionally helpful for me to, to connect with other ACOs in the space who, you know, the leadership that is required for ACOs is different. It requires, in my mind, resiliency, agility, an innovative spirit collaborative spirit and you need to be results oriented and data driven and i'll be honest i was disheartened by our results which indicated we had some work to do in this regard in every single domain so although i have a senior team that is absolutely committed to this work and passionate about this work there were areas that that we needed to get better at and i think all of the domains are important i i went back and I, i've read my results many times to be thinking about how we can build off what we learned there but I think the most important one is vision, establishing the setting the direction. If you don't set that clear direction, one that your team can get behind and envision and get excited about, you don't have the foundation that you need to build on those other domains. So that would be the first step that you have to have. And again, painting that picture of success for people so that they can really see what value looks like in their mind and then be able to lead their teams to get there. Jen, as we wrap up our interview today, I don't think our conversation would be complete without us talking about how you engage providers within your ACO. And as I understand it, of the 1,600 physicians that you have in your ACO, 1,100 of them are specialists. And you have a large specialist IPA that's even a minority owner in the ACO. So as president, which I think a lot of times comes down to the person that herds the cats, how are you aligning incentives to ensure that specialists are aligned with the PCPs? According to your annual report, you're distributing about 80% of shared savings to providers, and that's a tremendous commitment, and I think that's so great, and I, I want to understand that more. And, and in your discussion of PCP and SCP alignment, could you also highlight maybe some aspects of the comp formula that you've had in place to allocate savings? Sure. Well, as you say, I, I am chief bottle washer and chief cat herder here at the organization. And, you know, we, we recognize that, you know, just as the ACO has built infrastructure to support population health management efforts, our providers are at varying stages of that infrastructure build. So we want to support that activity through distribution of paper performance and shared savings dollars. At times, we do retain funds, and we have retained funds for system solutions that might benefit the entire network, for example, data management tools, clinical documentation resources, but most often these funds are distributed. Our financial distribution model sits on top of physician compensation models for employed physicians, so our model only dictates what dollars are sent to the entities. The comp models will dictate then how individual providers are compensated. So we've traditionally built our model based on a community of providers working together, 
right, clinical integration on three key performance metrics. And so we point right back to our priorities, which is performance on the quality heat map, which we've talked about, our utilization metrics, ED per thousand and admits per thousand, and ambulatory clinical documentation. So we assessed each local health system or each hospital community based on their performance in each of these areas. They get the most points for exceeding targets. They get some points for improving over prior year, even if they don't meet the targets. And right now, based on each community result, the dollars will be split then based on 40% to hospitals, and then physicians are 60%. And it's equally split between primary care and specialists, 30% and 30%. We actually get some feedback on that, as you can imagine, because primary care feels that they have the bulk of the quality measures and are really asked to manage total cost of care. But we, as as you stated earlier, we do have 1,100 specialists, and we think that they are critical to engage in this work. And so we didn't want to not engage them. And frankly, because we have 1,100 specialists and we have more like 400 or 500 PCPs, the per dollar to PCPs is much greater, obviously, than on the specialty side. So so that does benefit primary care. But the way we we designed it by community, because we really do want the community of providers to see themselves as collectively responsible for the community of patients that they serve. We do allow some opt-outs, if you will, so specialists that engage with us on more specific measures like shadow bundles or the development of coding cards that I mentioned, they can get credit for that kind of outside of the model. So we try to build some flexibility in that model to allow for innovation and to recognize that extra work. This model we've had in place, we look at it every year and we we think about how to make changes to it. And this base model has really been in place for about five years. And I call it the model that everybody loves to hate because it's it, it's tricky to come up. Well, certainly if you think about physician comp, it's always a hot topic. It's, it's a hot issue. This is not comp, but it's similar too. And so it's hard to, to address everybody's concerns, but we feel it addresses the most important principles of integration. Obviously, the ACO has had an influence on the local health systems, the hospital communities. We've talked about how they each come with their own culture, their own mindsets, objectives, their own priorities. And at the same time, the ACO is trying to develop unified culture. I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit about how you've influenced those hospital community cultures and and as well how the ACO culture has developed over the time. Sure. So we've been in various stages of implementation throughout the years and different communities are at different places for sure. And so again, we've got these 10 hospital communities or local health systems. We've called them previously kind of a loose federation of states under the main health system. As I've mentioned, we're going through unification. So that will change and that will that will significantly enhance the way ACO is able to do its work as all of these various groups now come under a single management structure. They'll all have common resources, common infrastructure supports, and so it will really help us leverage the work that's done out in the regions. But I think we've really influenced that work through this Value Oversight Committee structure. The the Value Oversight Committee, until COVID, has been 
in-person meetings. We didn't allow people actually to call in. So even though we had people driving sometimes an hour and a half to come to these meetings each way, they came in person because it was their only opportunity to connect with each other. And the beauty of the VOC was really that sharing of best practices. So, hey, I see you're doing really well in ED. What did you do? And I know you have that same challenging population that I do. What are the tactics that you've tried to address that? And that best practice sharing, the, the ability to connect with their peers where, where they don't typically have that connection has been significant. And the discussions that we've had at the, those tables, there have been a lot of aha moments. As you know, we all get so busy in our day-to-day -day work. A lot of the work is, of ACO is kind of retrospective. It's, it's stepping back and it's looking at the care that we've provided. And again, there's a lot of ahas when we do that. And when we share that information with the clinicians, it helps them go back and continue that culture of improvement back at their local health system. So I think the ACO work has been instrumental in continuing that culture of improvement and spurring innovation. So oftentimes for shared savings, we also will retain a certain amount of dollars and do a call for innovative projects. And these regions will come up with some really great concepts that we then can build upon and, and learn from going forward. So it's that culture of innovation as well. That culture of innovation is definitely happening at Maine Health Accountable Care Organization. Jen Moore, president of MAKO, thank you so much for joining us today. I feel like we've come full circle. We talked about culture, and we all know that culture eats strategy for breakfast. I think that's the famous quote that Peter Drucker said years ago. Creating that culture, defining the strategy, operationalizing tactics – and then ultimately measuring success and achieving great outcomes. Jen, you're doing so much in terms of creating and improving the health of your community. And certainly we are grateful for you to join us today and being a part of the ACLC. And we look forward to watching the continued success of Maine Health in improving outcomes. Thank you, Eric. And thank you, Daniel. It's my privilege to do this work. And I really appreciate being part of your podcast today. Thank you, Jen. And how can our listeners find out more about Maine Health ACO and the great work that you're doing? I would encourage you to go to our website, mainhealthaco.org. We have a lot of our information publicly. We include our coding cards out there. We have a lot of our best practice frameworks out there. You can see our annual report and, and dive deeper into some of our results. 